Welcome to the InfoQ Culture Podcast. My name is Shane Hasty. At the recent Agile 2016 conference, I spoke with David Bentz and Michael De La Martha about their mini book, Why Agile Works, the values behind the results, which incidentally is available from InfoQ. David, Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. Can we start with just briefly, if you'd introduce yourselves? Sure, sure, Shane. Yeah, so um, David Benz and I, um, as I've been explaining to folks at this conference a little bit, I'm um, not from the Agile world. (laughs) So a lot of this is very new to me, very interesting. Um, I come from, I do, however, come from computer engineering background, but I moved into, um, I wanted to become a creative writer at one point. And I found myself moving into the blend of engineering and creative writing that could make me money was technical writing. Uh And so I got into technical writing and training. um, And we started, I started with a very small company that had a contract with a very large company, um, Cisco Systems. And so, you know, a lot of my experience with Agile was working as a startup. When I started to see what Agile was, and I started to think, oh, yeah, this is what we were doing. This is what we had to do at a startup. So, you know, um, a lot of my background um, is from the training world, and it seems to fit in very well. I found it, uh, I found myself very much at home at Agile 2016, my first Agile conference. Thank you. Michael. Yeah, Michael Delamatha. Um, I've been an Agile coach for about 10 years now. And I discovered Agile when I was a dev manager. And I was a really bad dev manager. And I wanted to get better. <laughs> and so I learned about Agile and converted my teams to Scrum at that time. This was 2007. And then in 2009, I went off and became an independent consultant. And most recently, I became a Scrum Alliance certified enterprise coach last year. Congratulations. So how did the two of you come to to collaborate? (laughs) That's a really interesting story. Uh, So Michael reached out to me because he had saw something I had written in another world and, you know, about training and development. And he said, and and he said, you know, a lot of what you, what you write about plays very well in, in this world I live in and you know, and I'm interested in writing a book. And, and my, you know, my first reaction was, oh, wow, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's one of the things I've actually come to admire very much about Michael is that he's, he's very, very direct. And, and, but that struck me at the time, you know, I, I wasn't used to that. I, I work at a very large corporate company and, and I, I, I said, well, okay. But it was very interesting at the same time. So I said, let's, you know, let's talk about this. And we talked a little bit more. And one of my, you know, early concerns was, you know, can, can I work with this person? Can I, you know, so we kind of proposed doing something small first in a very agile fashion. And in about two and a half weeks, we'd written the paper for InfoQ that was emotion and cognition. And I realized that yeah, this was going to work out really well. You know, <laughs> I was learning a lot from this experience. And yeah, so um, I, I just thought it, 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 was, it was kind of cool, you know, 
um, somebody coming from a different world with uh, that type of mm -hmm. a proposal. <laughs> and Michael, why, why did you reach out to David? Yeah, so the original motivation for writing the book is that I had just come off of this extremely challenging engagement where agile values had not been present. And it had been a very practice-focused sort of project management rollout of agile practices. And at that same time, I felt like the agile community was actually pulling back from values. So the values had actually been removed from the Scrum Guide. Um, the Kanban folks took years to write down their set of agile values. And this is also when scaling agile was becoming very popular, which was very practice focused, at least at the start. And so just when I needed help in emphasizing the importance of agile values, I wasn't getting that from the agile community. And so I wanted to write a book which captures that. And now, of course, it's part of a resurgence, uh, the focus on, on values. So the values have come back now to the Scrum Guide. The Kanban folks have people like Mike Burroughs centering their practices around values. And now we have Lalu talking about actually, in some sense, how to scale by implementing values, not by implementing a set of practices. So very happy with the book. And I was looking for a collaborator who was really good at writing and expressing things. And as David said, I found him in a different world. And David has this unique combination of extremely strong technical skills. One of the things that he didn't tell you is that he used to be in the PhD program in computer engineering. So he understands this stuff backwards and forwards. And then also has this unique skill of being a phenomenal writer. The book is called Why Agile Works. And you touched on it there in terms of the values, but what was the, what was the gap that you were trying to fill? What was the, the need that this covers? Yeah, so very simply, it's an argument against cargo cult agile, right? I go into an environment and I see this surface behavior and I copy and paste that surface behavior. So I put everyone in say a, a war room, not understanding that war rooms are great when people like each other and trust each other and want to be with each other, right? But it's terrible when people are fighting against each other, right? So I happen to live in San Francisco and there are a lot of you know, ping pong rooms at startups, right? So large companies go there and they say, hey, let's add foosball and ping pong, right? The reason that foosball and ping pong work at a startup is that people like being with each other. They like spending their personal time and their private time with each other. And it's a way of bonding and connecting. You take those same things and you put them in a large corporation and it's a way of avoiding work because people hate working and at least now they can play ping pong at work which is apparently okay because there's a ping pong table there and so it's fundamentally about what agile is about and what the agile manifesto is about you know the agile manifesto is essentially silent on practices right and it's all about the principles and the values so it's refocusing on that which is actually what really matters so who is it for Who's your, your target audience? Who should read this book? So initially, I wrote it for myself, right? I wrote it essentially as a self-help book to remind me of the importance of Agile and of the different components of Agile values. So what we do in, in the book is we break it down along multiple dimensions, and we talk about a variety of things, right? From collaboration to craftsmanship. We give examples. We talk about why it is important. We talk about it at the very high level, but also giving very specific examples. So people who want to read this book are people like managers who are thinking of implementing Agile, but not implementing Agile, because of course you don't implement values, right? You implement practices. And so people who are interested in going through that mindset shift, 
are the people who are going to find this book attractive, also people who want to deepen their understanding of this work and trying to sort of move to a different level of consciousness, not just adding another practice to their toolbox. When I think about this book, and, and it's probably because I do a lot of leadership training, a lot of things like talking about the executive conversation, um, how, how salespeople can reach executives, how to talk to executives. So in a lot of ways, to me, I think this book um, is for people who want to explain Agile to executives or who have that need within an organization. Because what I see a lot of is I see a lot of executives who don't, they, they see it as a process. It's, it's a process. Oh, we'll just sprinkle some Agile on this, you know, and it'll, it'll, it'll work. We'll have them doing, you know, scrums, etc. So a lot of what I was working in is, as, as we wrote it was you know, points of how to have that conversation with executives. And I, I feel like, yes, we could hand this to an, an executive and they, you know, it, they might be able to say, oh, now I get it. What are the key messages then? What are the things that the executive is going to get out of this or, or anyone who reads it? And how will it help them? Right. So there's a beautiful story about... Um, being consistent in word and deed, integrity about um, salespeople in the book. And very roughly, there was a product from a large company that was going to be sold in a consultative style, so a longer term type of sales cycle. But the salespeople were incentivized sort of on a weekly basis for a transaction. And so here was this practice that was inconsistent with the goals of the organization, right? And so the question is, do you want to change this at the level of practices or do you want to adhere to a certain value? And if so, what value is that and how do you go about having that discussion? You know, do you go to an executive and say something like, you know, you're wrong, what you're doing is not making sense? Or do you talk about things like integrity? Do you talk about things like collaboration? You talk about things like allowing people to adjust how they're working and how they're evaluated based on what the actual goal is, right? So that's a beautiful example that's given in the book of how these values can support all sorts of nurturing behaviors and helpful behaviors, both for people and for the company itself. Yeah, a phrase I like to use is organizational dysfunction. So the simplest way to explain this is nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go into work and screw everything up. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of comes in thinking, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm, we want to do a good job. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. But sometimes there's there's barriers and there's there's fears and that, that, that people have that, that prevent them from being honest with each other in a lot of ways. You know, one of my favorite examples was our, our CLO one time. We have a quarterly meeting. He has a quarterly meeting for his direct reports. And he wanted to make this quarterly meeting better. So he came to our group and he said, well, we want you to use technology to make our quarterly meeting better. And when my, my boss told me this, he said, well, you know, he came to us and he said, we, we, we need to use technology to make this better. And I just started laughing. Because you know? <laughs> I said to him, I said, you know, there's no amount of technology in the world that's going to make that meeting better. You know, the, the meeting is not good because it's an entire day and it's eight speakers and each one has an hour to present. 
And what happens is, is that each speaker takes that entire hour to present. And it's just mind numbing, you know, and, and, and I think everybody who's ever sat through one of these meetings knows it, but no one is willing to say anything about it. And at the same time, you know, our CLO, like what he's thinking is I'm trying to allow our team to express themselves and to, you know, so he's thinking he's doing the right thing. They're thinking they're doing the right thing. The end result is horrible because no one's able to speak up <laughs> and, all we really needed to do, what we ended up doing was we just time box the speakers at six minutes. And we cut the meeting to a half a day because it allowed him to ask questions. And what happened at the end of the session was everybody came back and said, oh, this is the best thing ever, you know. Well, because finally, you know, the speakers didn't have to talk as long. He was able to ask the questions that he'd never been able to ask before because he didn't have time. And, you know, suddenly the dysfunction was was cut through. But that type of thing is sometimes, it's hard, it's difficult. That's culture. It's, it's different people's assumptions. And it's, oh, you know, kind of figuring out what it is that they're, they believe and trying to overcome that. Michael, you referenced a, a, a resurgence of the values thinking and... Um, we're seeing things like modern agile and uh, Alistair Coburn's heart of agile. Why is this? What's happening? So I live in the United States, and I think that this is part of a much, much bigger gestalt. So we just witnessed maybe one of the most amazing political campaigns in U.S. history, the Bernie Sanders campaign, which specifically talked about having a political revolution. And I would call it a values-based approach to politics. And so there's just this extraordinary interest, probably catalyzed by a whole bunch of things, but certainly a very different perspective that millennials have about openness and transparency. And we're seeing these amazing companies like Everlane, which is an apparel company, started off selling t-shirts. They actually tell you on the website what their costs are for every single thing. Here's the cost of the labor. Here's the cost of the duties that we pay. Here's the cost of the shipping. And here's how much we charge you. And so you know exactly how much they're making off of you, right? There's another company called Brathwaite, which sells clocks or watches, and they do the exact same thing. They say, here's the cost of the quartz movement. Here's the cost of the labor. So there's this amazing openness that's happening in the community. You have companies like Valve, where the CEO, Gabe, is now a member of the Forbes 400. And the way they work is that people who are interested in working on something move their desks and work with other people. Right. A highly self-organized system. And so there's this general thing that's happening in the United States, possibly in the world, where there's this great interest in completely rethinking the way that large organizations are run, you know, away from hierarchy, command and control. The leader is knowledgeable and everyone else does what he or she says to something where everyone is valued as a human being. And then you're starting to see all sorts of different structures and practices. And that's one thing that's really improved. So it's one thing to state, I want collaboration and I want trust, but that's not just an intent, it's also a skill. And so we're actually becoming better and better at that as a community and as citizens of the world and actually putting that into action, right? How do you actually collaborate with a thousand people? We know how to collaborate with five people in the same room, but how do you do it across a thousand people? Because if you don't do that, then it's very easy to have a leader that tells people what to do. So I think that's what's happening, and, and it's both being reflected into Agile, and Agile is sharing that with the rest of the world. 
What's happening with the book? How is it being received? So I'm very pleased with the reception of the book. I shared it with uh, Robert Graves, who's the CTO of a startup in San Francisco uh, called Clover Pop. And he read it basically overnight. You know, the book is a really fun, breezy read. Someone told me it was actually Englishy, right? In sharp contrast <laughs> to other books on Agile and other technical books. And what he said to me is, I've been doing Agile, practicing certain practices for a very long time, but this connected it all together, right? So this book gives all sorts of examples. It talks about crossing the chasm. It talks about Lelou, pulls in all sorts of research that other people have done and looks at it through the prism of values. So the reception has just been very positive and very heartwarming. I've seen the same and uh, it's been wonderful being at Agile 2016 and getting to talk to a number of folks. Uh, you know, who, who've read it. And um, I, I think my favorite comment so far was, oh, you're that David Benz. <laughs> so where to from here, gents? What happens next? So for me, I think the big question, the big challenge is you don't teach and you don't insert values into someone's head, right? It's an invitation. And it's a very broad question. I think that there was a generation of Agile coaches, including me, who would show up at a client site and say, you know, Agile values are really important. The Agile values are X, Y, and Z. Make sure you're adhering to those values. And now let me talk about certain practices. And of course, since the practices depend on the values and the values weren't there, there were a lot of challenging transformations. But I think the simple fact is that we don't know a lot about how to encourage these values and how to nurture these values. So for me, that's a growing edge as a coach, right? How do I catalyze that change? How do I create an environment in which those changes are possible? What's fascinating is that the research says that value change occurs when people confront something that their current framework can't deal with. And so they themselves change their own consciousness. So a way to do that in a sort of training setting is to create games or simulations that challenge the current way of thinking. So I've been part of the Agile Games community for close to 10 years. I'm now running a new conference on the West Coast called AgileGamesWest.com. And the idea is to put people in situations where their current framework of values is challenged and they're allowed to ponder and reflect on it with the idea that if they want to, they can explore other value changes. That's a really good question, Shade. And I've been asking myself that while I've been here at the, the conference this week, especially um, during Lisa Atkins. She, she had a, a session called Agilist as Agents of Social Evolution. So there were a lot of really good conversations in that because it fits very much along the lines of you know what we did in the book. And one of the things I think that came out of that to me that I've been thinking about is, you know, that, that change itself is, is a complex process. So if you think about how do we apply Agile to this thing called change? And I think that's probably one of the things that interests me most. You know, you, you hear Michael talking about it through, through games and through simulations. Um, but I, I find that tremendously you know, it, 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 it's a strong interest for me as well, um, and, and especially coming from the training world. You know, what can we in the training world bring that might be able to do these types of things? And a number of folks, again, it's been a really hot topic at, at the, um, you know, at Agile 2016. A number of folks have mentioned some of the things that they've been doing. So I would like to explore that farther. 
Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us and good luck with this continuing journey.